Hey, so uh, welcome. Uh, we have a tradition here at Living Spring. Uh, the tradition all over the world for churches all over the place is uh, I say he is risen and you say he is risen indeed. Okay, so let's go ahead and practice that. We'll be just like every other church all around the world. He is risen. Okay, now at Living Spring, we don't use the word indeed very much. So if you told me you got a raise, I would not say, you've got a raise indeed. I wouldn't do that. Okay, I don't use, we don't use the word indeed. I would say, dude, that's awesome. So I'm going to say he is risen, and you're going to say, like almost like a game show host, dude, that's awesome. Okay, ready? Yeah, yeah, like a game show. Okay, ready? Here we go. He is risen. Dude, that's awesome. Okay, yes. So last year, um, so I don't usually go back and listen to my own sermons, uh, unless I use them as a sleep aid, like it's like time to go to bed, and I'm like, I'll put on one of my sermons. <laughs> okay, no. Uh, but I did uh, listen to last year's Easter sermon. And the reason I did that was because um, we were outside, like we are now, uh, but everybody was in their cars or online. And so um, we had an FM transmitter out in the parking lot, and uh, we would, you could listen on your AM or AM, or whatever, a FM, AM radio. And, uh, and then if I said something incredibly awesome uh, and you wanted to say amen, you would just flash your lights. And then if I said he is risen, you'd honk your horn. And um, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of depressed when I watched that last year because it was a reminder of the beginning of something that has taken us a year to get through. And I felt like this year, this is probably the most opportune time I've ever preached an Easter message. Like, if we ever need the story of Easter, if we ever need the story of hope, of, of looking forward, it's now. It's now as we try to figure out all the things that have been going on with the pandemic. And it kind of brought me to some of the disciples who were following Jesus for three years, watching him do these miracles and listening to him preach and all these different things. And when Jesus died, hope died with him for them. When Jesus died, it was over. They thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was going to take over Rome. And that, uh, that finally they would have their land back and they had all these expectations of what normal should be. They had all these expectations of what, how Jesus was going to respond and how, what he was going to do. And we'd finally get to show the government you know, exactly the way it was supposed to be. We could finally show the religious leaders how it's supposed to be, what shalom really looks like, because they had a corrupt uh, religious system as well. When Jesus died, hope died with him. And the thing I wanted you to understand kind of coming up to here is that they didn't follow Jesus because he was a good teacher. They didn't follow him because of the miracles. That was a big part of it. They saw some of the miracles and they were blown away and they were part of some of the miracles. But that wasn't the thing that kept them there. It wasn't the thing that gave them hope. The miracles in the teaching. As a matter of fact, one of Jesus' biggest miracles was the feeding of the 5,000. 
And so uh, he uses the disciples. So not only is it a miracle, but he helps them engage in this miracle as well. So they were passing out the, the bread and the fish. So if you can imagine, you're part of that. Your basket would be filled with fish. And as you fed more and more people, the farther you'd be away from Jesus. Okay, so you, you feed the people right here. You run out of fish. You turn around and somehow Jesus like does it and you get more fish. I don't know how it all worked. I wasn't there, but I could imagine it was a, I dream a genie. I don't know, but and then you go and, and you go farther and farther and farther. And you can imagine the farther away they got from Jesus, they, their bread and their basket of fish would become empty. And they were like, man, I sure hope he, you could see the need in front of you. And your back's to Jesus, and you're like, I sure hope he's got about four more baskets in him. And it worked, and it happened. And so they get in this boat, and they go to the uh, southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Jesus is there, and uh, the crowds walked along the shore and came to him. And so he was trying to get away from the crowds, but he couldn't because of this miracle. And so what he does is he begins to teach, and the words he begins to say are really hard words. He starts talking about being the bread of life, and Somebody from this crowd calls out, we know your dad. You're not the bread from heaven. Like, we know Joseph, right? And so they begin to peel off. If he was on Twitter, he just lost a bunch of followers, okay? And so he, he, they, they, they unfriend him or whatever it is. And he turns to his disciples and he says this, what about you guys? Are you going to leave? It's getting hard now. Are you going to leave? Are you, are you going to go? The circumstances aren't working out. And watch what... Uh, what Peter says, or don't. Oh, here we go. Too many pockets this morning. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now you could say, well, oh, see, it was his teaching. But he doesn't stop there. Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Those disciples followed Jesus because they believed in their heart that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he was ushering in the kingdom of God. That when he says, not my will, but your will, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, he meant it. That's why they were following him. So when he died, nowhere in Scripture does it say the Messiah, that if, as far as they were concerned, that the Messiah was going to come and die and the whole thing was going to be over. There were no Christians because there was no Christ. He was dead. And when he died, hope died with him. And for some of you, as we finish up this pandemic, hope has died for you. Maybe loved ones have died. And you're just scared to death of this. Maybe some of you who are watching online, you're online because you're, you're, you're scared of the of COVID. I get it. I get it. Maybe some of you have lost work or you haven't had as much. Your hours have been cut down and you've lost hope. Maybe some of you wonder, are we ever going to be able to hug or shake hands again or whatever it is? Maybe some of you, you have your kids at home and you're wondering, why did I have kids? I can't remember now. Okay, that was a joke. First service, didn't laugh at that at all. They thought I was serious. Like I, I'm actually against children. Like, gosh, but it was early for them, so it's okay. But, um, but yeah, you're wondering, or, or seriously, you're now home with your loved one, your significant other, and you're realizing, oh, man, this is hard, right? 
And maybe, I'm dead serious about this, you might, your marriage might be at the end of hope because you're wondering how, how, how you're going to get through this. When Jesus died, hope died. Here's the good news. And this is the good news of the resurrection and why we celebrate Easter. He didn't stay dead. And when he rose, hope rose eternal. Not just for the disciples, but for you and I who call ourselves disciples. That whatever this pandemic and whatever, you know, we're, we're now meeting together and I'm telling you this, this year is so much better than last year. Like just to be able to see your faces, some with masks, some without, whatever, however we do it. And I'll explain more about that next week. We're moving forward. But we're going to see what does it mean to worship the risen Jesus? What does it mean as we take this step, and we're going to start a new series next week called Back to Normal. It's a question mark. And, and I want to do something I've never done before. So I have seven weeks of sermons planned, but I'm going to open it up to you guys. Because seven, seven things we learned from COVID. Three are non-negotiable. You can't touch those. But I have four that I could interchange. So if you come up with a better idea than one of my four, I'll preach it for you. Okay, so I'll put it out on social media. I'll give you guys a chance to, to respond. For those of you online, you, you'll be able to type in there. Here's what I learned. And you might come up with a better idea than me. I'll preach that. If it'll preach, I'll preach it. Okay, uh, three, no touchy. Those are mine. Okay, but four, we'll let you go. And so that's what we're going to be going into. How do we take Jesus into this new normal? How do we take what lacked hope? Now we take the hope of the risen Christ and we step into this new normal. Now, before I get started, I want to tell you why I believe in the resurrection. And it's not because the Bible says that there's a resurrection. Now, a lot of you might go, oh, wow, we need to get another pastor. He doesn't believe the Bible. Yes, I get the resurrection from the Bible. But that's not why I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection because there were eyewitnesses that were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that the church survived for 40 years before anything was even written down. The Gospel of Mark was written 40 years after Jesus died. How in the world, or rose, how in the world did the church survive that? It survived because there were witnesses because it was an actual event in history that people bet their lives on. People said, hope died, but then it rose, and there is nothing you can do to take that away from me. One time, Peter and John, they, they healed this uh, person who was, had uh, just a physical disability or ability. I don't know what I'm supposed to say now, but there was something going on. And so they healed him, right? And they get taken in front of the Sanhedrin. Here's what Peter and John say. They tell him, stop, just stop, just stop talking about Jesus. You can do whatever you want. Heal people, read your Bible, pray, whatever. Have, you know, fast, whatever you guys do. Go ahead. Just don't say Jesus. And Peter's like, okay, first of all, how can I not talk about what I've seen and what I've heard? That was the church for 40 years, guys. Everything was passed on through oral tradition. And now you say, but John, in, at parties, I would play the game telephone, and oral tradition doesn't work. That's because you guys are lame at oral tradition, right? <laughs> That's because we have Google. We don't need it. Our brains don't need it. They needed it. 
As a matter of fact, most of the Old Testament was passed on by oral tradition before it was written down. Like to the word. And that's how it was done. So I believe in the resurrection because of Matthew, who was there. Part of Jesus' tribe, a tax collector. One who was redeemed from a life of, of corruption. And he wrote down what had happened. I believe in the resurrection because Mark wrote it down. And again, this wasn't the Bible at that time. The Bible, the canon of the Bible, came 350 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what we, how we get our Bible. These are sacred texts for sure, but they were tested over time, years and years and years. I believe the resurrection because Mark wrote it down. Mostly he was probably listening to Peter when Peter was in prison and Peter's getting to the end of his life and Mark's like, hey, let's get this stuff down so we have it. Mark wrote a gospel. Luke, who was a physician, smart dude, he starts off going, okay, Theophilus, here's the thing. There's a lot of stories out there and there's a lot of stuff being written down. I want to make a careful inquiry. And so Luke goes and he does eyewitness accounts, interviews, reading things. He does this like massive journalistic endeavor. And he comes up with what we call the Gospel of Luke. John, who was there, wrote his things down. James is the uh, half-brother of Jesus. And I always like to say that uh, James, um, like what would you need to do to convince your brother you're the Messiah? Right? Like my brother seen me in my underwear. Right? Like what would I have to do to, see, to have my brother believe? But not only... Did James, the half-brother of Jesus, believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God? He died over it. He was martyred. Before he was martyred, he wrote down, James is actually the first book of the New Testament that was written 30 years after Jesus' death. His brother died because his brother experienced a real event in history, the resurrection. Jesus predicted his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he pulled it off. That's why I believe what I believe. Peter, as First and Second Peter, if you read that, it, it's a, the nucleus of, that whole, of both of those books, or both of those letters are surrounded around the resurrection. The resurrection changed Peter's life. Jesus actually, Peter actually met the risen Jesus on the shore, wrote that story down. Paul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus, we're going to see some of his writing later. Years and decades and decades and decades after Jesus is raised from the dead, Paul writes, hey, it's all about the resurrection. Go ask some people. They're still alive, he says in 1 Corinthians. We're going to see that in a second. So that's why I believe in the resurrection. So what does it do for me? What is, what is the resurrection? So what I decided to do this year, I haven't done this before, is I decided to combine all the Gospels into a super gospel, okay, for the resurrection. So we're going to go, we're going to have passages from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and they'll be interspersed in there in chronological order, so don't send me any letters, okay? It'll, it'll be accurate, okay? But each gospel has some very sweet and some very nuanced ways to looking at what does it mean to serve a resurrected Jesus. So, in Mark, it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached. So, basically, what would happen in the Jewish community is you'd have Sabbath every Saturday. 
and you would um, prepare everything up until sundown on Friday. Everything, because you couldn't do anything for 24 hours from sunrise on Saturday to sunset on Saturday, or, or sun, sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, 24 hours. So when I was in seminary, uh, I was in this class called Foundations of Ministry Life. <clears throat> Got an A. And uh, you had to do this, you had to do a Sabbath keeping. And so you, um, you, you, you did a Sabbath. So you, like Lisa and I had to work and get everything all set up before uh, Friday night. And, and so everything was all prepared. And then we had her in-laws over. Anyway, and so um, we had, just kidding, mom and dad. It's all fine. That was fun. And so we sang songs. We lit candles. We like, did all this sa- Sabbath stuff. And then we like chilled for all, all of Saturday. It was, it was awesome. And I wrote a paper like, I'm going to make this part of my life, which I never did. Anyway, and so, so this is where they were. So they had to get Jesus off of this cross and get him into the tomb because you weren't allowed to do anything for 24 hours. And so the day before, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was basically like their, their supreme court of the Jewish leaders, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So Jesus had begun to um, uh, have an impact. We, we, we saw Nicodemus a few weeks back, who was a, a Pharisee. We saw him begin to have an impact who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, as Westerners or Americans, we think going boldly means we kind of like strut in there, got our chest out. No, just the fact that he's actually talking to Pilate is boldly. Like, you know, have you ever done that? You're going to your boss and you're going to ask for a raise. Just the fact that you're going is a bold move, right? Well, this is what happens with him. They went to Pilate and asked for the body, and Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, listen to this, he gave the body to Joseph. This was unheard of. Criminals didn't get to be buried. They hung naked. It was all about shame. They hung naked, they were shameful, and then they were thrown off a cliff. Just no berry, open, like such shame in Jewish culture. Pilate decides to give the body to Joseph. Now, check this out. This dude, Joseph, takes, he bought this linen. He takes Jesus off the cross. Can you imagine being the person who removes Jesus from the cross, bringing him on to to his shoulders? Now, listen. At this point, if Jesus isn't dead, Joseph is going to know. And he's going to be happy. He wouldn't say, look, just stay, just stay dead for a second. I'm going to shove you in a tomb for a little bit. It'll all be fine. Trust me. No, there'd be rejoicing. He didn't die. The Messiah lives. Maybe they'd cart him off to a house or something like that or try to reset, get him going. No, the dude was dead. He was dead. Joseph knew that. And he put him, it doesn't say in this gospel, but he put him in his own tomb that he had purchased. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock, and then rolled a stone. One of the gospels says it's a big stone. Put it on there against the entrance of the tomb. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Uh, now, I like to joke about this. Again, I'm not pitting genders against each other. But I could just picture how a dude would wrap a body and how women would wrap a body to prepare it for burial. I could just picture a dude, you know, wrap it up like a burrito. I've done a burrito before. Yeah, okay, there we go, right? So it's very interesting to me. Read your Bible. There's lots of interesting things in there that the two Marys are like, look at what tomb it was. Third from the left. Got it. So they go to the Sabbath. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might anoint Jesus' body correctly, okay? Very early in the first day. Uh, you, if you do want to complain about that, it's Michelle at livingspring.com. Very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who's going to roll the stone away? This was a legit tomb that was supposed to stay legitly closed. It wasn't a temporary tomb. It wasn't a cleft in the rock. It wasn't like, hey, let's put Jesus' body here for the time being. It was a tomb. Who will roll away the stone of the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Not to stay on the men and women thing, but don't ever think women are timid. Because when they entered the tomb, <laughs> which me, no. I stay, oh man, it's rolled away. Mary, go check and see if, if everybody's... If he's in there or not, okay, just go tell me. Tell, yell out from inside, right? But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. We've switched to Luke, if you haven't noticed. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. We're beginning to see that this is like no other event in history. You say, well, John, why do you believe that? Because it's in the Bible? No. I believe it because the church survived for 40 years under intense persecution after much inquiry had been done about this story. They stood beside him. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And then the men ask a question that I have for you guys, that I have for myself as we enter out of this pandemic. And we begin to ask ourselves, who, who, what are our leaders going to do, right? So for us, we're in California, so we think to ourselves, what's Newsom going to do, you know? What, what, what's the pandemic going to do? Like, what's nature going to do? Are we going to have another spike? Like, if we, if we open up and Living Spring is beginning to open up and, you know, we're lowering the mask stuff a little bit and, you know, we're testing the waters and seeing what's going on, like, is there going to be a new strain? We have a whole industry, the news, whose job it is to frighten us. To, who, I don't care what news you listen to, Fox, MSNBC. Their job is for clicks. And so they're, they're working really hard. Like, what's going to happen? And keep us on our toes and all that kind of stuff. Like, what, what are we going to do? Will we ever be able to shake hands again? What am I going to do for my job? What, what, do, do I go back to my cubicle? Do we put up like cones of silence, like get smart for those of you who are my age, right? The cone comes down and it's like a thing and you're like, like what, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen with our kids going back to school? The question that the men asked the women, 
is the same question I'd ask myself. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are your circumstances the thing that brings you hope? Why is a governor, and for those of you who aren't in California, maybe you're in Florida or whatever, who cares? A A governor is going to mess up the fact that Jesus predicted his death, burial, and resurrection and pulled it off? Like my retirement, what my kids do, like all of that is going to depend on my joy? Why do I look for the living among the dead? How can I open up a website and begin to read an article and just be completely paralyzed with fear? That's all dead. Jesus conquered all that. Jesus took care of all that. There was a real event in history that happened where Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he pulled it off. And in doing so, he broke the chains of brokenness, of sin, of death, of disappointment, of all those things. And he brings it back into shalom. So that's the question I have for us this morning. Why, why do we look for the living among the dead? Why, why do we need the pandemic to end and everybody's happy and the stock market's great and everything, yay, it's all, you know, rainbows and Skittles? Why do we look for the living among the dead? Jesus conquered all those things. And so it says he's not here. He's not in the tomb. He's not about that. I love what we sang. He borrowed the grave. Nobody borrows a grave, okay? Trust me, if I, if I die and I'm buried, just leave me alone, okay? I'm not borrowing it. It's mine. Remember how he told you while he, you were still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. He's like, remember that? Remember the time when Peter said, no. This will never happen. And then Jesus had to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. If you're praying and you hear God say, get behind me, Satan, you got to change your prayers, okay? You're not, you, you, you need to change the narrative. That Peter was on the wrong track, right? Jesus says, no, it has to happen. And they remembered his words. And so we switch to Mark now. In Mark, it says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And like I said, there was a good chance Peter was telling Mark these stories so that Mark could write them down. And Peter injects himself into this. And one of the things I love about the Gospels is that the writers of the Gospels don't make themselves look good. Right? Like if I wrote a Gospel and I included myself, I'd probably put a couple things in there like, well... Yeah, he denied Jesus, but if you understood the times, you know, it would make a lot more sense. You know what I mean? They don't do that. They say, this is exactly what happened. And so Peter, in some way, is like, go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter's probably being reminded of not just the burial and resurrection, but the restoration that came the next day when Jesus was on the shore. And he said, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. And there was that restoration 
And I can just picture Peter going, go tell the disciples. And Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee where you will see him just as he told you. Now we switch to Matthew because Matthew writes this little sentence that always gives me pause every time I read it. I was reading Matthew over the last few weeks. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. As a follower of Jesus, there have been many, many, many times in my life where I was afraid, yet filled with joy. My circumstances weren't changing. The environment around me wasn't changing. The people that I so desperately wanted to change around me, that I was on my knees going, God, please change them. Please change them. Weren't changing. I was afraid, yet filled with joy. Because hope sprung eternal when Jesus rose from the dead. And even though my physical humanness can't stop myself from being afraid at certain times, my soul cries out in joy that I know that Jesus has conquered those things. Maybe you're afraid but filled with joy. Maybe some of you, you've been wondering about this whole Jesus thing, right? And maybe the church has gotten in your way, which I totally understand. I don't believe in this because of the church. And maybe some things in the Bible you read, you can't understand, they're hard or difficult, or maybe you don't agree with them. I don't believe in this because of the Bible. I believe in this because it was a historical event that really happened that the church survived on for 40 years before anything was written down. And now that it's been written down, I have the luxury of being able to go to the Word of God and have it enrich me. I wouldn't have needed it if I was in the early church. And so maybe for you, you're like, well, the church is kind of in my way and the Bible's in my way, but there's something about Jesus and I'm afraid to, 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 to step in, but I'm filled with joy knowing that when I commit my life to Jesus, it's going to change. It's going to change. Maybe you felt this if you're married on your wedding day. On my wedding day, I'm going to be honest with you, even though I married the best woman on the planet, I was afraid, right? Well, first I was like 12, but the other thing was that it's like I knew the commitment I was making, and yet I was filled with joy because I knew the person I was marrying. In the same way, maybe that's you. Maybe for you, you've been a Christian for a long time. You read your Bible, you kind of go to church, you've been in the pattern. Maybe you grew up a Christian or whatever, but you've never made that step into like, he is my savior, he's my king. I'm going to the ropes for him. I'm like ready to give it all up to follow Jesus. These little things I'm dabbling in, gone. And you're afraid. How can I live without that? And yet you're filled with joy. That's where they are. Afraid yet filled with joy. They ran to go tell his disciples, and this is so cool. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings. <laughs> yeah, greetings. Okay, let me just, not to read too much in the Bible. Jesus isn't at the tomb. You got to get away from the tomb. You can't be looking for the living among the dead. He's not there. He, he borrowed that tomb. He conquered sin and death. You're not going to meet Jesus mired in the tomb stuff. You're going to meet him on the road to going to try to find him. 
and he says, greetings. In the different Gospels, you can read them all. There's all different encounters that people have. One of my favorite ones is when they're all in the upper room, and then Jesus, like, appears out of nowhere, and like a prank almost, like, like he scares them. Because imagine you're in there praying, and you're like, man, I wonder where Jesus is. And he's like, hey, how's it going? Like you'd freak out, right? He does that. He meets them on the shore and gives them fish, all these different ways to meet Jesus. Afraid yet filled with joy, he meets them, and they clasp his feet and worshiped him. I talked to you about Paul. Paul's written so many uh, letters in the Bible that we've can't, like I said, that once it became the Bible and 350 AD, we, we, we canonized it, right? And so we have all these great texts inspired by God that we can learn from. And we learn from this one in 1 Corinthians where Paul, you know, you know, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've memorized a lot of scriptures and that's great and good for you, keep it up. But don't lose the one thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Don't lose what Peter didn't lose, what James didn't lose, what all these other people who lost their life, what Paul didn't lose. He says this in 1 Corinthians, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The number one thing, if you forget everything else I've written in all these letters to Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and my letters to Timothy and, and my letters to the Thessalonians and all those things, if, if just as you read all that stuff of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. Paul is saying this. If you can remember one thing, remember the resurrection. That's it. That's when the power of sin and death was broken. That's when our sins, we had a spotless lamb. One sacrifice for all of our sins that we can go to and say, God, forgive me. I, I, I just, I've been blowing it. This isn't the life you have for me. I want to go back real quick. I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And then, this is why I believe in the resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, which is what, which is Peter, essentially. I don't know if that was Paul's nickname for him, but he called him Cephas, or Ceph. For short. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. This is decades after Jesus rose from the dead. Decades. The Gospels were already written. You could go ask somebody, did you really see Jesus from the dead? I kid you not. I didn't believe it myself. But I was sitting there. I followed him around. I saw him do all these miracles. I know Jesus. I've listened to him. I know the sound of his voice. I know all that stuff. I showed up. There he was. I, I saw his hands. I saw his feet. Paul's going, you, you don't believe me? Ask them. And then he says, though some have fallen asleep, which is just a nice way of saying they go. They did. Okay. So then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
That's why I believe in the resurrection. That's why I believe in Jesus. That's why I've given my life to him. If you can predict your own death, burial, and resurrection and pull it off, you're probably the Messiah. So what does that mean for us? Well, Paul wrote some other things as we kind of head into the coming weeks. And again, if, if, if you're joining us online or joining us here, we'd love to have you join us for this next series. Uh, it's eight weeks long. Next week's an intro. And then um, we're going to hit one of my non-negotiables first. Uh, I'll just give you, that's what it is. It's you were never in control and you'll never be in control. Okay, so that's, there you go. No need to go to it now. I'm done. That was it. Okay. But I'll leave some open for you. But what does this mean as we kind of move forward? Here's what it means. It comes out of uh, Ephesians. This same Paul who's saying, look, now that you got the main thing, you've made the main thing the main thing, the resurrection. That Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And if you don't believe me, ask some people. They're still alive. He says in Ephesians to this church, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, that you're going to take this resurrection power, this resurrection fact, and it's going to tip the scales of how you view moving forward in your life. That it won't be dependent on how things open up or how things go. It won't be dependent on... Do your kids get back to school or not? Or what does your job look like? Or what does your 401k look like? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. That hope that was risen eternal when Christ was raised from the dead. To which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He doesn't mention the economy. He doesn't mention who's going to be president. He doesn't mention what's going to happen with laws and all those different things. If you get that apartment you were looking for, if you're single and you don't find a spouse, he's not talking about any of this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Does any of that sound like our circumstances? No. It sounds like someone who made the main thing the main thing, that Christ died, was buried, and he rose again, and he predicted it himself. He says that power is like the working of his mighty strength. What does that look like? Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. That same power is available to us to get through what we need to get through as we move forward. Far above all rule, authority, president, governor, mayor, pandemic, economy, power and dominion and every title that can be given. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here's what I want to do as Annalise comes back up. Some of you, have, my, I've been a Christian now for a long time. I'm 41. I accepted Jesus when I was four. No, I'm 50-something. I honestly, do, I think I'm 54. Yeah, I'm 54. And um, 
I probably accepted Christ. Well, I probably prayed the prayer like eight or ten times. Okay. I don't know which one stuck, but one of them did. Okay. I've probably prayed the prayer I'm going to lead us into a thousand times. Because it's not a magic pill. It's a constant thing of saying, Lord, I want to make you Messiah. I want to make you Lord of my life. I'm tired of doing it my own way. I always end up missing the mark, which is basically the Greek way we say sin. I just keep missing the mark. And I just want to put you on the throne. That power that they were talking about in Ephesians, I want to, I want to have access to that power. Those, that first thing, the main thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. I want to make that my main thing. And so, for those of you who have been a Christian for a long time, maybe it's time to renew, to reset. One of the things I, I look back, and let, let's just say that the pandemic is, we are landing the pandemic plane, okay? I don't know that I did that great over the year. I did okay, I guess. But I can look back at different times and go, man, I could have put him on the throne right there. I would have been calmer. I would have. You know what? I didn't have to send that email out. It didn't do any good. And so maybe for you, you want to say this prayer again. Put him on the throne. Maybe for some of you, you've never prayed this prayer before to make Jesus Lord. And maybe you're afraid, but filled with joy. You go, okay, I'm I'm going to take this step. It's just a step on a journey. Right? It begins this relationship with Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. Like it says in here that we get to spend eternity with him, that eternity starts now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And whether you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm, you know, I have the luxury of praying it myself. When I pray it and lead you in it, I'm praying it. I'm not just leading a prayer. It's not the Pledge of Allegiance. right? I mean this when I pray it. So if you feel comfortable and if you're watching at home and you have your family in the house and you're like nervous because you know everybody and they're like, well, are you praying the prayer? Don't worry about them. They're cool. They'll be fine. Here's how it goes. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know my life is broken. I know I've blown it. But I know you are king. I know you broke the chains of sin and of death. And so I give you my life. Be Lord of my life. Help me on this journey. As I might stumble, I go to you for forgiveness. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for being buried. And thank you for rising from the grave. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, or maybe make another commitment or whatever, here's all I'm asking you to do. Just send me an email. John at livingspring.com. We'll get you going. We'll get you on this journey. It's a journey that takes all of us. The church, the word church just means gathering. That's all it means. It's just a gathering of people who are on the same journey. 
authentic people like you and me, just going, man, this is what I want to work on now. So Annalise is going to lead us in another song, In Christ Alone. It kind of gives the, it's an old hymn. It gives us the idea that this is really all we need. It's Jesus moving out of a pandemic, into a pandemic, whatever we're going to do. And uh, then at the end, I'll come up and uh, we can all stand and I'll, I'll bless us. If you're comfortable, go ahead and stand for the blessing. We end on that note that he is ours and we are his. We're bought with the precious blood of Jesus. So now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go in his peace, in his joy, and in his strength. In Jesus' name, amen.